This is great. Let's pray. Dear God, we uh, love you and we love your word. And we've come today to see what you'd say to us, Lord. Uh, let your tr truth flow freely. And uh, let's just let us gather around uh, your word and discuss it, Lord, and be filled with the joy that it brings. Lord, let the spirit be present as we go through. And I ask that you bless this lesson. I ask that you bless the testimonies this morning, Lord, and that you are lifted up in all of it. And in your name we pray. Amen. Good. So we uh, were into uh, chapter 4 of Galatians last week. And uh, to this point, uh, Paul is trying to uh, make the Galatians see that they need to be free from the bondage of the law. And so far he's established some things for us regarding the two covenants. There is uh, the old covenant and the new covenant, which is also God's promise or the gospel. And he made the case uh, that we looked at last week that it preceded uh, the old covenant. The, the gospel preceded the old covenant. And so then we looked at contracts in general, and we saw that uh, contracts are things that are established, that you cannot uh, change them, you cannot add to them. Once they're uh, ratified, it's, you know, it's a done deal. And so then that brought up the uh, question of what's the purpose then of the law if we already had the promise? Well, uh, we saw a few things. Uh, one was that it was to identify sin to identify sin, make it evident, and to hopefully in that process maybe restrain it a bit. It was to, it was to set the nation of Israel apart. Um, they were God's chosen people, and they were to have a distinguishing character about them that would point the other nations, the heathen nations, to the Lord God. Um, it was to draw uh, then Gentiles to God. Um, and also, it was to point to something very important, and that is our need, because of the frustration uh, that the law brings, because it's, it's, it's impossible to keep it. And so that was a very major purpose. And then it also was spoken of as being a sort of a teacher, uh, a tutor, a strict tutor, if you would. And that also was to lead the way and make the way for the gospel to come, Jesus Christ. Okay. So we are in Galatians uh, 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 8 and uh, go through verse 11. Paul saying, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, which by nature are no gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons, seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. And now again, we need to understand that prior to the, the Galatians, the Christians there being saved, as Gentiles, they had served and worshipped false gods, that is, entities that were not God. And this is really true of all the unregenerate people in the world, isn't it? I mean, even if there's no conscious thoughts of worshiping false gods, the lost are all under the dominion of the God of this world, who is Satan. Therefore, their allegiance is to something that is not God. 
Paul states this universal truth very well in Romans 1. I'll just look at verses 21 through 25 where he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And prior to their conversion, the Galatians had been no exceptions to this. They had served things, even demons, which were not God, and consequently they were condemned by the law as well. But now things had changed. Paul wants them to see this. They had come to know God. Better yet, God knew them. So that now as his children, they'd been set free from sin, and they'd been liberated from the demands that the law's standards make. However, the Judaizers were instructing them that as part of law-keeping to observe the feasts of Israel, that was in order to be right or to gain some merit with God. Now, for a saved person, Paul was calling these things weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. And in that, Paul is just saying that if in Christ we're dead to the law, then we're delivered from every part of it. Because of the Judaizers' false teaching, though, the Galatians had begun to keep these Sabbath days and new moons and uh, years of jubilee and release, all of that, all of that. It had great significance in the law of Moses, but that significance has been fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because those things were part of the Old Covenant, Paul clearly discouraged believers from practicing those feasts, that is, as works or a means to merit or otherwise substitute for Jesus. It was contrary to the leading of the Holy Spirit, so much so that Paul says, I fear for you, that perhaps I favored over you in vain. Okay. Verses uh, 12 through 14, Galatians 4. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. In other words, you weren't repulsed, you didn't reject me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. So it is that... Paul has great concern for the Galatians' welfare. But they drifted from the truth of the gospel and they're attracted to whatever symbolism that they saw in the law. Paul could understand this, though, because he himself had been delivered from that mirage by, in, and through Christ. Now, Paul's anguish is for them to be as he is, that is, in his freedom from religious bondage. But when he says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are, Paul is reminding them of a couple of things. 
First, God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't have favorites, and He doesn't have varied standards for select people. We are all the same. And what is truth for one of us is truth for all. And additionally, as Gentiles, the Galatians had begun not under the law. Now, ironically, this seems to be where they want to be. Paul, on the other hand, had begun under the law. And through the grace of Christ, he was now free from that. He was not under the law any longer. So their allegiance, the Galatians, has transferred from Paul to the false teachers. But Paul is saying, this doesn't hurt me, this only hurts you. He, w- he wasn't, though. He wasn't willing to let them suffer the consequences of their mistakes, not without uh, protesting it. And then he reminds the Galatians that on a prior visit, he'd uh, been, deta- been detained in their area due to some illness or an affliction. And at that visit, Paul had received uh, extreme kindness and care Uh, by the local residents in such a way that they had really impressed him. They'd welcomed his message and they had responded favorably to his teaching as if he were even an angel of God or Jesus himself. But it was in Paul's absence that the false teachers had snuck in and changing uh, the Galatians' minds, they had turned uh, uh, them from the message that Paul gave and they had turned their hearts from Paul in the process. Any comments? Yeah, I think the, the, this idea that they're being corrupted what God has given in the Old Testament, and it was supposed to be not a punishment for them to carry out those promises, but it was supposed to be a celebration. But yes. then it was this thing where, it, it, and to remind us that we're not above this, that there are blessings that the Lord gives that we absolutely can turn into weights and to curses on ourselves because it's this idea of like, well, don't you want to be right with the Lord? That's absolutely. Right. Do you feel right? Well, and, and, and to not have something that I can measure in my own activity, but instead to say, no, Jesus says that he has completed it. He says That's right. I am right because of him, and we're going to leave it at that. That's so hard. And that is faith. Yeah. But there is an appeal to, to human nature, and actually it appeals to human logic that you don't get a free lunch. And so we'll, we'll explore that a little bit further, but that's basically what drives a lot of people, and that's what motivates the world in general. Okay. Uh, all right. Galatians 4, verses 15 to 17. Where then is that sense of blessing you had. For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? I love that verse. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Where before then, the Galatians had been greatly committed to Paul's friendship as indicated by that very expressive offer to give them his eyes. It now seems that they had become enemies. Hmm, what had happened? You know, sometimes this is really not all that unpredictable. And even with Christians, when you begin to embrace a uh, tradition, some kind of add-on that has, that has a lot of appeal to the flesh, then anyone who challenges that position may be viewed as the enemy. You know, even if the challenge includes 
solid scriptural evidence that is truth. And I think the Galatians here were failing to see that uh, truth and love were one and the same. God's truth and God's love. I like that verse that I read about, am I your enemy? Because it reminds me of a, of a very basic formula in algebra. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? So I have two companion verses that this, this draws me to. There is a very intimate uh, uh, connection between God's love and his truth. In James 9, I read something. Uh, in chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, it says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Oh, that's good. And then First Peter, in chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, says this, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. And so if truth is A and covers a multitude of sins is B and C is love, then truth equals love by that, that reasoning. So it's mathematical, right? Okay. Now Paul informs them uh, that, the Galatians, uh, that the false teachers weren't concerned with their welfare. They were just promoting their own agenda. In fact, I mean, they just wanted a following uh, to make them, you know, feel important. But they had succeeded because the Galatians had zealously embraced their error. Any comments? I think misery loves company. Um, and it's interesting that oftentimes those who were enslaved don't appreciate those who have freedom. Oh. They would rather have you with them Absolutely. than to watch you in your freedom, that your freedom disturbs them. That's right. There's an affirmation. People reject God all day long, and then they want to be affirmed in a marriage contract. What's that about? You know, that's from God. That's His, that's his covenant. Why do you want that? It's an affirmation. Um, yes? Right. Yes. Right. You know, I've read somewhere if you say you're gay, you're anything but. Uh, and there is a deep psychological guilt that is, that is there for a reason to point us to God. When we cover up our guilt, when we, uh, you know, give it another name, make it somebody else's responsibility, shift the responsibility, then we're missing something that God wants us to feel. Okay, verses 18 through 20, Galatians 4. But it is good always, in e and excuse me, but it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I'm present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. You know, Paul's a diplomat. <laughs> And as diplomatically as he can say it, he's telling them just how fickle that they are. Uh, they had not examined 
these deceptive arguments of the Judaizers, but they had just instead zealously pursued a new course. You know, unfortunately, this happens frequently in our present generation, and I'm speaking of Christians. Uh, each time some new idea or religious theory grabs the attention of undiscerning people, and I'm, and I'm uh, called to remember books like The Shack or A Course in Miracles, uh, the Purpose Driven Life, Your Best Life Now, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. All of those have made the circuit through the Christian uh, groups. And so when you really get into them, there's not a whole lot of God's truth. Um, we need to know that there are always deceptive substitutes that will obscure the truth for us. And they often lead to a very enthusiastic pursuit of error. And regarding the Galatians, the Galatians, Paul is not claiming to be the only source of truth, but he's rebuking their inability to discern between truth and error. They had so easily forsaken the truth for a lie. And I believe the, the labor here that Paul speaks of is likely his travailing in prayer for them that Christ would be evident in their lives and especially in their minds, in their thinking. Their present attitude was actually baffling to Paul. I mean, he might even wonder whether they were regenerated or not, so that when he would see them, he wouldn't really know how to speak to them. Any comments? I think that's a good subject matter to talk about as Christians because we can, the Old Covenant, New Covenant. Yes. Correct. And the new covenant is so far superior. Very good. And just obey Christ and live. That's what this book is about. And so, you know, it comes down to the finished work of Christ. Do we trust in that? You know, there is great significance in what those things represented, but he fulfilled these things. And so that's what, what Paul is writing. So we're about to start a longer passage here in Galatians 4. Uh, and we'll then try to unpack it once I read it. Uh, and it's very good. So let's, let's start. Galatians 4, 21 through 27. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, uh, that was Ishmael, and one by the free woman, that's Isaac. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, 
one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present, that is earthly, Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, that's New Jerusalem, is free. She is our mother, referring somewhat to Sarah. For it is written in Isaiah 54. Now they're going to quote from Isaiah 54 here. This is God speaking to Israel. But in it, you can hear some reminiscence of the promise that he had made to Sarah already. Where he says, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. But as we've previously noted already, it seems foreign to human nature to be acceptable to God without doing something, to merit our standing. So that even today there are those who desire to be under the law. But think about it. The same scriptures that give us the law also provide shadows and pictures and types of the gospel which is meant to fulfill and supersede the law's requirements permanently. Paul says that he's speaking in an allegory here. And an allegory is a story, a poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal its deeper hidden meaning. Allegories abound in Scripture, and they depict so much of God's plan to fulfill His promises through His grace. But by grace, the law, whose purpose was to be our temporary tutor, it was to be replaced. The allegory that Paul gives here to the Galatians involves Abraham's sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and their mothers. And it's going to explain the two covenants that we've been looking at in the book. So consider this. Abraham had two sons who were the fruit of two totally different relationships. One son became his heir, that's Isaac. The other became the enemy of his heir, that's Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of a bondwoman, meaning a slave. She was Hagar. She was Sarah's Egyptian servant. Sarah gave her to Abraham as a sort of second wife, hoping that she would bear him offspring since her womb was barren. And this was Sarah's plan to help God out to fulfill the promises that he made to her, which is really scriptural, right? Because God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I, I just can't stand it when I hear that. It's so, so often it's someone who hasn't got a clue, who's just trying to sound pious. But it just demonstrates, you know, seeking an independence from God, anything but being obedient to God. Well, guess what? Lo and behold, Abraham thought that was a pretty good idea. <laughs> these people, these are real people that we're reading about, and God doesn't cover up their warts, okay? Abraham thought that was a good idea. All of this was done without consulting God or even considering this was purely an act of the flesh, or I should say impurely. The resulting child, Ishmael, was not the one that God had promised Sarah. And he became the father of nations that have been the blood enemies of Israel to this very day. And so in this allegory, Hagar, Ishmael's mother, represents the old covenant, that is the Mosaic law. Sarah 
on the other hand, was a free woman. She, God had promised her that by grace she would miraculously conceive and bring Abraham's child forth, his heir, from her barren womb. She actually was Abraham's wife, and it was through her that the heir should and would come. You know, God made her that promise about 14 years before she hatched her scheme, the one that resulted in Abraham's birth. And when, Ab- and when Ishmael, excuse me, the one that resulted in Ishmael's birth, and when Ishmael was 14, Isaac then was born to Sarah. And in this allegory, Sarah represents the new covenant, God's promise. You know, it's really appropriate that these two women should be what they were, that is, one a slave and the other free. This way they depict the, the very nature of the two covenants that they represent. The one, Hagar, is called Mount Sinai. That's where the law was given. And as a slave, she would only bring forth children into bondage. The other covenant is the new uh, Jerusalem, we're told. That comes down from above. And it's associated, if it were associated with a mountain, it'd be Mount Zion, which is actually God's dwelling place among his people. Now, as Mount Sinai, Paul tells us that Hagar represents earthly Jerusalem. That's the capital of the nation of Israel, whose people, at that time, they were in slavery to the Romans. And uh, in uh, this day, they're still in bondage to the Mosaic Law. Um, and to this day, Israel's people, the Jews, have been blinded to the wonderful benefits of God's promises in the New Covenant. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. But their minds, this is speaking of the Jews, were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses, that is the law, is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now in contrast then to the earthly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, which is yet to be revealed, it's it's free. And it's spoken of in several places in the New Testament. I just chose one in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And behold, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That's Mount Sinai, Uh, Mount Zion, excuse me. And all those who are in the new covenant, all believers are going to be there where we just read. As Isaac was the son of a free woman brought forth in liberty, so are all of those who partake in the new covenant. Remember, Sarah was first and she was already waiting on the promise when Hagar is introduced. Just like the gospel preceded the old covenant, the law. And even though Sarah gave birth after Hagar, Sarah was permanent and resided with Abraham in his house as long as she lived. And the promise that Sarah received continues to bear fruit. That that is the children that are brought brought forth in liberty who've been given eternal life. That's us. 
This is not true of Hagar's offspring, Ishmael, the father of the Islamic nations. Any thoughts here? Okay. Next, Paul's going to uh, let the Galatians know that these two covenants are in incompatible with each other. So we're going to go uh, to uh, verses 28 and 29 of Galatians 4. Paul says, And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. And this is what I think somebody was alluding to earlier. It isn't always easy for people who've been born and raised in bondage to comprehend the blessings of freedom. But you know, God began recording those blessings for us in the first book that Moses wrote in Genesis so that we might understand that there is a very great conflict between the Spirit, capital S, and the flesh. And that's what this, that's what this allegory is about. The story of Isaac's birth is also the story of the banishment of Ishmael and his mother, Hagar. And we can read that account in Genesis 21. This is a longer passage of verses 1 through 12. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, no questions, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God has commanded, had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed. Because of the lad and your maid, whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. When Ishmael mocks baby Isaac here, Paul sees it as more than childish uh, behavior, and in Galatians, he's called it persecution. Moreover, when Abraham would have defended Ishmael against Sarah's strong demand, God himself sides with her and tells Abraham to do it. In this way, God's giving us a picture of how the New Testament doctrine stands in relation to the law. Hagar represented the law. Ishmael represented that which is born of the law, which is always a product or a work of the flesh and cannot produce righteousness. Sarah here represents the new covenant of grace that is the promise of God. That promise came long before the law. And Isaac represents that which is born of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Isaac was the product of God's promise. Galatians uh, 4, verses 30 and 31. This is, yes. 
Yes, you may. I think it's interesting the words there according to the goodness, even, well, there's 29. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Yes. Uh-huh. And even now there's, I mean, it's obvious, there's always um, opposition of the believer and the non-believer. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's how the law is. And we're, we're going to talk about that, too, as we go further. Very good. Okay, verses uh, 30 and 31 of Galatians, chapter 4. <clears throat> but what does the Scripture say? Now this quote comes from Genesis 21. And it's actually paraphrasing what Sarah and God say to Abraham. It says, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. This is very important to God. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. You know, Paul wants believers then to understand the old covenant cannot be retained once the promise has been received by faith. And he's telling the Galatian believers then to cast off this bondage of the law. And he hopes that when they do this, they're going to realize that they need to throw out the Judaizers that brought this uh, thinking in. Because they encouraged the, the Galatians to despise Paul and his teaching. And Paul was teaching the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. You know, it's also important to note that observing the law will not make anyone eligible for an inheritance from God because believers are made heirs only through the merits of Christ who is that seed of Abraham that was in the original promise. Believers are made heirs through Abraham, through, through the promise. So just to summarize the end of chapter 4 here, the points that are made, the promise to Abraham of righteousness through the New Testament gospel was given long before the Mosaic law was given. Uh, Jesus Christ is Abraham's promised seed, and he's fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. God's promises in, uh, include eternal life, and it continues to produce more of Abraham's children every day, each of whom had of a godly inheritance. Okay, any, any uh, thoughts here before we begin to go into chapter 5? Mm-hmm. And the consequence of that simple disobedience of like, it's a rock. Like, is the rock that valuable? No, the rock is not that valuable, but the picture is. It's very, very significant. And in that sense, Ishmael is a expression of a fear of the failure of God. And, uh, and that's the same for us, like when we're, when we're oppressed by circumstances and the correct thing to do is to trust the Lord. That's true, but that, that fight that we have is we measure things according to our ability. And right. our, in our emotions, we say, but what if God's incompetent? Right. And then we react to that fear, which is based in our weakness. That is that's, a, that's, the, that's the real problem. That is a very strong strategy of Satan that's prevalent in our culture right now. He wants you to believe, he wants people to believe in general that God makes a mistake. God makes a mistake. 
you know, he didn't design you this way. Uh, you know, this is not really a sin. You know, uh, we have a we have better knowledge. You know, we're so smart, we've evolved, and yet it's all about did the, did the Lord say? Way back in Genesis, and so, you know, yes, that's that's what's going on here too. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, some of the slave women is, you know, that doesn't make sense. That's, you know, that's ridiculous. There's accountability in life, you know? And I think that's part of the thing that appeals, again, to our pride and our sin nature that expects that we need to work for what we get. Yeah. So. Right, and that's the way that advocates, legalists, will try to shame someone who's free uh, and the liberty of grace into feeling like you're just, you know, being lazy or you're trying to escape or, you know, whatever they want to call it. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a finished work of Christ. I either believe it or I don't. So. Well, I think it's funny that Tom brought up having a friend that, uh, I've got a, a friend that I'm dealing with kind of the same thing. He's heading down that similar path of, you know, the, there's benefit in all these things. And, and it's like, there may be, but Jesus fulfilled all of the law. So that means that he is my Sabbath rest. That means he is the bread from heaven. That means he, you know, all these things as we look at the law. Yes. He is the fulfillment of every one of them. So there may be significance to those things, but there's not the same significance as Christ and his sacrifice. Yes. That significance is fulfilled. Yes, some feasts are prophetic in a sense. However, the way we approach those things is what is our motivation? Am I doing this to, to you know, spruce myself up, and make me look good, for God to need to make me worthy in some way? But it's all just substituting uh, that for a finished work right. that Jesus has done. Yeah, Heather just said it. It's like a, I feel like I'm missing something. Right. Just cover all the bases. Right. right. But I think even in that, right, it's this idea of like, isn't it good though? Yeah, yes, right. it is good, but this idea of the good is the enemy of the best, and there is nothing greater. True. And especially socially, it's this idea of like, isn't it, isn't it good to do good? Yes. Yeah, hang on now. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> there are many, many degrees of nice things you can yeah. do, but apart from coming from the Lord, it will be completely worthless. True. And you may you may intend and you may actually perform an action, oh. but you cannot have it fulfill the potential that you see that the Lord has yes. apart from His Spirit doing the work. And you Great. cannot cause yourself to be God. And that's the real underlying struggle there. You know, this is where Paul's going with all this, and we are going to get into that. It's great. Good and righteous. Are they the same? Hmm. You know, what does God say about our righteous deeds? Well, I mean, we're going to look at this stuff as we go in, and we're going to, it's going to be like a cold bucket of water. At least it is on me. And, and so, but it's truth, and uh, it's life-giving. So, Sue. So. How long from when Paul was there to when he's writing the letter? There's another thing that I'm seeing. He writes it from Corinth. He writes this letter from Corinth, but the dating is not certain. Somewhere in the my thoughts are is that that they're in Christ, they you know, they, they had the teachings 
Right. He brings that up in the, the, a few uh, verses before. And yet this illustration that he's given with, with Sarah and Hagar, you think about it, you know, the timing, and he says, you know, 14 years before uh, Ishmael, and another 14 before, so think about it, there's 28 years then that Sarah was waiting for right. That's right. You know, she gave up. Sarah gave up in the middle of the 28 years, right? He made her wait 14 more. You know, God, it does, he's going to do a miracle, and he wants us to know who did it. There needs to be no uh, question of uh, how it comes about. She was 90 when this child was born. So, all right. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom then that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And the word we have here, therefore, then suggests a conclusion to what has come before. That's going to take us back into the two covenants which were represented by Sarah and Hagar in chapter 4. Hagar then, who represented bondage or slavery along with her child, were cast out. Ishmael could not inherit jointly with the one, Isaac, who was the heir by promise. By comparison, the obvious conclusion is that, that slavery, that is, the bondage to the law, has to be rejected in favor of the freedom that Christ provides by saving us through His grace. Paul continues with this phrase, keep standing firm, and by that he means don't be dissuaded from the truth of the gospel. That is, don't Trade truth for an era, even if it fits our human logic. Human logic insists that we can't have something for nothing. Rather, it says we must work for our heavenly reward. And using this logic is what the Judaizers did. Their message was if you don't observe the law, you can't be deemed righteous. Paul's warning then is to keep standing firm. And that acknowledges then that there's a pressure to fall. He wouldn't say it if there weren't. In fact, this is what he meant in Galatians 4.29 when he said, But as at that time he who was born of the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also, meaning today. In other words, those who advocate the keeping of the law want believers to cast off their confidence in the finished work of Christ. Even our own flesh, if we listen to it, urges us to believe that there's some level of performance that we must do to be worthy. Grace is hard to believe, hard to accept, hard to accept. Yes, it's amazing. <laughs> and sometimes the persecution can even come from the opposite direction, meaning we think it's okay to pursue our lusts of the flesh. 
Now that logic tells us that since we're saved by faith without works, then we can forget responsibility. We can forget holiness. We can forget righteousness and just please ourselves. You know, there's a real common acronym out there today. YOLO. Y-O-L-O. Have y'all heard that? I'm just an old geezer, but it was new to me. You only live once. You only live once. That sounds great. Until you realize it's just a rationalization for impetuous, impulsive uh, license uh, for reckless behavior. Right? Does being free from the law mean lawlessness? Does it mean freedom from restraint and therefore a license to follow the lust of the flesh? Not at all. Sinful behavior is not acceptable. But neither is the law as a means to overcome it. By God's grace, we're set free from both the bondage of sin and the condemnation of the law. You know, we should really be in awe when we begin to consider what it is that Christ did for us. He did not simply keep the law. He fulfilled it. That means He walked up to it. He walked through it and all the way out to the end of it. Remember Romans 10.4, I, I quoted that scripture early on. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So the allegory then in this previous chapter helps to demonstrate that when Isaac came, Israel, Ishmael was banished. And in the same way, when Christ came, the law ended as even being a possibility to, for the pursuit of righteousness. If Christ is dwelling in us by faith, there's now no purpose for the law anymore. Christ is the one who produces the righteousness in the heart of a believer. Paul has said that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, but the law's job is finished. When we come by faith to Christ, from then on, righteousness is the product of Christ working in us. And when it comes to the law, people only fool themselves. The best that one can do is only to try to keep it. But the truth is that we could never keep it. With the law, there can only be progress toward, there is never progress, excuse me, towards finishing the demands. There's only a growing deficit. Think of our national deficit. With increasing condemnation, continuous bondage, only Christ has made us free. And Paul refers to the keeping of the law as a yoke of slavery. What a laborious image that brings to mind, right? Oxen straining to pull loaded wagons over dry, rutted, rocky roads on pioneer trails. Those poor animals, they never are free, are they? But there is one yoke that is easy and it is light, and that's the one that Jesus offers us. Matthew 11, 28, 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is because when believers are yoked with Jesus, we're led by the Spirit. We see that Christ in us is the producer of our righteousness. He is the doer of the works to which he calls us. I should stop. I'll run over a little bit. Um, Jeff, will you close us in prayer, please?